Welcome to the MI Hunting Podcast. This episode, I'm joined by Albert from Biolize Seed. So we talk about his product Nitro Boost and soil health. All right. Welcome back to the MI Hunting Podcast. Thank you for listening. You know, basically, I was wanting to bring Al on. Uh, sometime this spring to talk about Nitro Boost and his kind of his one-two system when it comes to food plot seed. Um, and he just so happened to be like, well, I got an opening uh, to nail, you know, on Friday night. Let's go ahead and record. And we were able to knock this out for you. And it's so awesome to have Al on to talk uh, about his products and vitalized uh, seed and soil health. I mean, when I first started getting into soil health and thinking that I kind of, you know, was getting the idea of, you know, regenerative agriculture, you know, the, the six uh, uh, fundamentals of soil health, you know, I thought I was starting to, you know, starting to think I knew something about it. And then I ended up talking with Al a little bit and he kind of opened my eyes to just how little I knew about the, you know, everything that's involved in good soil health, um, you know, all the different pieces that can play into it. You know, ultimately, I was very excited um, about his seed company when they started up last year. Uh, you know, I've told this story once before, but, you know, basically, I was starting to develop my own kind of seed blend and kind of doing already a one-two um, planting for the year where I do like a spring, uh, you know, cover crop slash summer food plot. And then I would follow that up with my, you know, primary hunting food plot program for the fall. And I was kind of developing up my own little blend of trying to balance, you know, different plants together and trying to get them to work together, kind of trying to follow that, that system of, you know, a diverse blend working to improve the soil. Well, come by now, you know, Albert has been, you know, doing kind of the same thing for, you know, several years now, developed his own blend that was, you know, on par with what I was trying to achieve. Um, so I was very excited to, to us. Uh, to you know, find out about Vitalize Seed and what Al has been doing, and you know, ultimately, you know, I've decided to um, you know go with his program. You know, one of the hardest things for me was trying to figure out uh, the different seed rates for all the different seeds in the blend. I mean, you're dealing with lots of different varieties of plants, and they all have a different um, you know density or concentration of of you know seed that you want per acre, and then you start mixing them all together. Uh, and you know, just it was racking my brain trying to figure it out. Well, Alice figured that out, and partnering up with uh, Jared from the Habitat Podcast, and they released the product. So, and as you'll hear too, you know, uh, you know, part of that blend is, you know, basically is for that the two-part system is Nitro Boost uh, in the in the spring and summertime, and then you have Carbon Load in the fall. Now, that Nitro Boost again is going to really be, you know kind of what the name entails is that it's to really, um, you know, get a buildup of nitrogen. So when you do your fall planting, um, which is usually pretty, um, you know, brassica or broadleaf, you know, base, um, you know, there is going to, you know, have a big draw or need a lot of nitrogen. So what, you know, that two page or that two part system, you're kind of loading up on that nitrogen for that fall, you know, forage, um, that you'll be needing. So then we get into talking about, you know, the, the relationship between carbon and nitrogen in the soil and you know, how that operates with the, with the plants and the microbes that are down in the soil. You know, basically you've got the, the plants, you've got the 
chemical makeup of your soil, and then you got the bio, bio, <laughs> biological uh, that really has to kind of all work together um, and being sort of like a bit of a balance for it to really work for you. Um, you know, not only for, you know, to have a good, um, you know, nutritious or well-growing food plot, but also um, if you're taken outside of the food plot world uh, for gardening or agriculture, you know, it all, you know, you can take a lot of these same principles and put it into whatever you're trying to grow. But let's not hold up things any longer and go ahead and jump into the conversation with Albert with Vitalize Seed. Go ahead and do a quick introduction of yourself, of who you are and what it is that you do for anyone that you know may not know yet. Yeah, Ty. Well, thanks for having me back, uh, Albert. And I am the co-owner and founder of Vitalize Seed. Um, you know, my partner is Jared Van Hees of the Habitat Podcast. Um, and we started the company just over a year ago. Uh, and we're, you know, focused on wildlife, um, really diverse cover crop mixes with our one-two system and, uh, and soil health. You know, those, those are our three primary focuses. Um, sometimes all encompassing in one or sometimes two out of the three, uh, depending on who we're talking to in the grower's goals. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so, um, you basically developed a kind of a, a one, two punch, um, seed blend where you're t looking at the, um, basically like a spring to summer planting. Um, that's, uh, you know, basically, uh, well, it's dubbed, you know, nitro boost, of course. And then that complements a fall planting, which is, uh, carbon load, um, which gets basically through like, a. that's kind of, it seems like that one's more so for the, the true food plot, you know, building up, you know, um, mass production and foliage or not foliage, but, uh, forage, um, and getting that, you know, basically that good food source for, you know, especially for deer during the fall and throughout the winter. Uh, but again, you know, with this being springtime, you know, I'm sure you guys are catching a lot of the calls and doing a lot of sales of the Nitro Boost because that's the time of year for it. Um, so, you know, if you would go ahead and dive into, uh, you know, Nitro Boost, you know, kind of what the goal is with that um, and how you kind of develop that and then how that works into with your night or the carbon load um, in regards to, you know, making that a, a system that works year round for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, really the whole goal is, is, you know, to follow the six soil health principles and anybody listening can Google that, but, you know, one of them is, you know, reducing disturbance, keeping a living root growing and, and so on and so forth and trying to reduce um, inputs. Right. And we wanted to come up with a system uh, before we started the company, you know, I always joke with people. I'm like, I saw a fertilizer bill for a spring planting one year and I'm like, well, I wasn't married yet, but I said, if I was, it wouldn't have lasted if I had to keep doing that because it was like, you know, two grand or 2,500. And this was probably six or seven years ago. And it really got me started into thinking, okay, what can I do to generate more plants available food by using plants, you know? So I wasn't really focusing the springtime on whitetails. Um, of course, as I did more research, I'm like, well, we can kind of knock out two birds with one stone because a lot of the plants that we can use are also going to be super palatable for whitetail deer. Example, soybean, cow peas, um, sun hemp, right? So there's there's a, several different um, varieties. So what we decided to do, um, you know, after doing it on our own farms, I started writing some blogs and things like that on different forums and sharing kind of farm tours and um I started getting all these, you know, comments and questions, be it on Facebook. Hey, I'd like to buy that mix off you. I'd like to buy that mix off you. Never really like 
I'm like, well, I, I don't really sell it. You know, I just make it for myself. And um, yeah, so long story short, there was enough demand there. And Jared with his his platform um, had had a lot of people, you know, asking. He had had me on as a guest or whatnot and had a lot of people of, of interest, at least. You know, we didn't really know where it was going to go. And we we're fortunate to get some good distributors right off the bat who were willing to, to believe in us and, and dive in. So um, with that little bit of background, what we did is we basically took the mixes I've been using on my farm or some variation thereof and um, have really tried to fine tune them to make them better and better. Um, but essentially the spring feeds the fall and the fall feeds the spring. Um, and when I say that, I mean the soil. So you're feeding the soil, the nutrients and making plant available nutrients available for that next planting. Um, and how that works is really a main focus around carbon and nitrogen ratios. So if you think of like a compost pile, you know, if it's just all leaves, it could sit there for a really, really long time and it doesn't break down because it's just too much carbon. But if it's some leaves and some house scraps and some gr green grass clippings and it's, you know, mixed in thoroughly well, all of a sudden it's amazing what happens is the compost pile tends, starts to generate heat and it starts to break down quickly. And before long, that compost pile isn't just a compost pile anymore, right? It's soil. It's it, it's it's really nutrient dense um, compost or soil, and that's kind of the same idea um, that we're trying to implement in on a field setting. So we work with a lot of food plotters. We work with a lot of small farmers. Um, I'm actually on a podcast uh, tomorrow with this really awesome uh, lady out of southeastern Ohio who owns a flower farm. And they use our fall mix, like you you mentioned, like kind of the deer hunter, right? Well, she saw the mix and she said, I need to buy that. And they're using it as just cover cropping. And she absolutely loved it because of the cover and the above and below ground tonnage that it created. Um, so we really focus on all different aspects of, of soil health and taking soil samples and, and stuff. But we use our system to try to um, minimize the number of synthetic inputs that one needs to put in the soil and maximize what we call, and this isn't something we made up, but we reference it often as nutrient cycling. And what that is, is in the spring, you have this, this mix of 13 different species, heavy on the legume side, but you still have your spring barley, your sunflower, um, your your rape, uh, et cetera, They're, uh, buckwheat. So a couple broad leaves, a couple grass species, and then you have a bunch of legumes. And what that's doing is you're fixing a ton of nitrogen through the legume production and growth. You also have um, a ton of photosynthetic capture because we have a mixture of uh, beans and lab lab and different types of beans for different height structures. One's a forage, one's an uh, ag bean. Um, you also have sorghum in there. I missed that on the, on the first go. Um, so you have all this different structure and vining structure and weaving in and out. It's creating you know, just like a solar panel, right? You're trying to capture every bit of sunlight that's hitting that field. That's really good for um, photosynthetic capture for microbes, right? Because it's, if, if plants are photosynthesizing, good things are happening. The microbes are, microbes are being fed. So what's happening too is we're fixing a ton of nitrogen. And that's prepping that ground for the fall. Because fall we call carbon load, which kind of is a play on carbon and nitrogen ratios. Um, and what that is, it's a heavy, much heavier carbon to nitrogen mix um, using, you know, standard metrics to measure such and it's a lot you know a lot more grains a lot of brassicas um, and then you do have all of your annual clovers in there 
Um, but of course, those don't really pop until the following spring. You'll get some deer browse on them and such for, for food plotters. Um, but what they do a really good job of is kind of aiding the soil coming out of spring in that, you know, March time frame when you start to get those kind of, you know, you get a 50 degree day here and there. Um, and that's where those annual clovers really shine because a lot of other stuff is still kind of in dormancy. Um, the rye grain, the winter winter wheat, and the um, the clovers do a really good job uh, both feeding deer through a very harsh time in the white-tailed world because most of your woody browse has been browsed off um, in that April-March time frame. You know, nothing's really green yet. So that's like one of the first things to green up. Uh, and then it will actually carry you and bring uh, build above-ground biomass going into that next spring planting of nitro boost again. But you also have all these grains. So all these grains are much higher lignin filled or higher carbon to nitrogen crops. So what happens is the second year, so now you have terminated your nitro boost and it fixed all this nitrogen, you have all this plant above ground biomass, it's very fast growing, you know, 60 to 80 days, you're creating biomass right now. And it, it, you're terminating it, you're planting your carbon load into it however you want to plant, we could talk about that later, um, planting into it. And that carbon load is absorbing all of those nutrients. And because those are lower carbon and nitrogen ratio plants in the nitro boost, they're breaking down quite rapidly to plants that need a lot of nutrients quite rapidly, right? So there's a very in tune system here from a recycling of nutrients perspective. So now you have turnips and radish and grains, et cetera, um, grabbing those nutrients and taking them up. So like I said, recycling those nutrients until the next planting. Now, when you go and terminate that carbon load, you're gonna have a much heavier or more dense thatch because of the inherent nature of higher carbon and nitrogen filled plants, rye grain for talking purposes. Why that's important is because we're going in there with a solid mix of legumes to, uh, to non, but they're gonna produce enough nitrogen that's gonna aid in the breakdown. One of the biggest problems with that I see, and I, I get, I'm really fortunate to get to pick a lot of farmers' brains. We just actually partnered with a, another podcast out of Eastern Pennsylvania, and um, the gentleman's a full-time agronomist, you know. So we'll talk row crop agriculture a lot and bounce ideas off of each other. And one of the issues that we see often with cover cropping, um, which is what we're doing here, you know, it's just basically cover crop on top of cover crop, is uh, one is termination time. And really that's driven because of seeding rate. So like guys will go in and they'll put down, you know, 300 or 400 pounds of rye because the more the better. Well, not necessarily because now you're letting that rye get really mature and then you're terminating it. And even if you just tried to plant soybeans into that heavy of a rye thatch, you don't have the nitrogen that the microbes need to cycle that much rye thatch. So again, it's going back to the compost pile example, you just have this kind of stagnant nature and what ends up happening well i'm gonna have to get that tiller out and till all this up because there's no other way for me to get through this thatch um in actuality a lot of times you could probably add some nitrogen fertilizer um to it to help break it down um but that's not exactly the most like intuitive thought process unless you have a you know pretty good understanding of carbon and nitrogen ratios so what we try to do is have super balanced systems that we figure that out for you you plant one in the spring, you plant one in the fall, and you plant it again in the spring, and you plant it again in the fall, and you keep cycling those nutrients, and you keep fixing more nitrogen, and you keep solubilizing more phosphorus, and you keep solubilizing more potassium, um, and by doing so, you reduce your need for inputs, um, and hopefully, 
through all my rambling that was coherent enough for the listeners to kind of understand how that system works. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly why I love having, having, especially having you as a guest to come on because you, you can articulate, you know, that process or explain it much better than I can. So you, you, that's fantastic. I mean, again, oh, you, you do such a great job of explaining it and then making it to where, you know, someone like me who may not necessarily know all the science with it can follow along and be like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, it's so funny that, again, that you talk about the, you know, the, that, you know, build up with too much thatch. If you don't have that balanced out, right. I know we talked about it last, um, last year, um, you know, basically kind of when we were first talking about your product and whatnot, that I ran into that where I had so much thatch that I couldn't even plant because it was just laying on top and wasn't even getting sold contact. So like you said, I, I ended up busting out a tiller, you know, doing a light tillage just so I can get some soil to see contact. Um, So another thing too is that I'd like to mention is, you know, um, so somebody might say, well, okay, that all makes sense, Al and Ty, but why not just use legumes in the spring and heavy grains in the fall, right? And and maybe some brassicas. What happens is, and let's just talk nitrogen. This is just, this is just for ease of, of understanding, but a couple things. One, the more diversity we have, the better the microbes are going to do, right? So, you know, some microbes like root exudate A, and when those microbes consume root exudate A, they have a, uh, a reaction that then creates microbes B to have a reaction, which then creates microbes C to have a reaction. And when you have a m- multitude of this occurring throughout the landscape, throughout the soil profile, right, and you have all of these different chains of microbes Microbes are, are relatively simple organisms from like a DNA perspective. I just listened to this uh, YouTube uh, microbiologist speaking about this like two days ago. You know, like, you know, they're relatively simple. So in order to get those kind of chain reactions or a common term thrown around here, like symbiosis, right? Yep. In order to get that to occur, you need multiple types of, of plant root structures and root exudation to maximize your soil biology, right? In fungal and bacterial uh, networks or uh, microbes. Also, when you look at like the NPK, which we're pretty much all familiar with, right? If you've ever bought Miracle-Gro or anything like that, that's the NPK model, which is a very good one. And I, I love looking at soil tests. I look at probably a thousand a year. Um, and I think they're super important to do. And we can talk about that. But let's just talk nitrogen. Nitrogen is a leachable nutrient. I think everybody knows that. And there's variability in that depending on soil type, rainfall, et cetera. But in general, Nitrogen is a leachable nutrient, whether it's going to go back into the atmosphere or if it's going to leach through the soil profile when it gets to nitrate. So if anybody's interested in, in this, you can Google the nitrogen cycle. And it, there's a bunch of diagrams and it shows whether it comes out the back end of a cow and it's manure, how then it's broken down and eventually becomes um, uh, nitrate or if it's in the air. And then of course it goes through you know nitrification through bacteria, through root nodulation, and then turns into nitrate, right? So at end, it ends up being nitrate in most situations. Now, what's interesting about that is if you only plant legumes, and let's just for talking purposes, say there's a hundred pounds of available nitrate in six inches. Let's say those legumes, they need a little bit, right? They need a little bit to get started as a young seedling. Maybe they take 20 pounds of that nitrate that's there. What happens to the rest of it that's just sitting there in that six inches of, of soil you're gonna hope that it's there for your brassicas the next fall 
and then you're going to have to likely fertilize again. Like what, what's going to, you know, and now your brassicas and uh, rye grains, so they worked their tails off to have taken up all that nitrogen that you now, they're decomposing and you plan your, and you think this is great. Well, this is for the P and the K likely because the bean, this monoculture beans are going to take it up, but all that other nitrogen there, what happens to it? Just slips out of the soil. So that's why like we have, you know, hybrid sorghum. That's why we have um, sunflowers. That's why we have spring barley, because those plants are going to then grab that nitrogen that your legumes don't need. So again, what are we doing? We're keeping nitrogen in the cycle. It's the same idea. It's, it's the recycling of nutrients because our plants, especially if you're using our system, the one, two system, they work their tails off in the spring to fix all that nitrogen. And then they planted everything, or excuse me, we planted everything in the fall and those plants worked their tails off to solubilize more PK, micros, et cetera, and use up that nitrogen that we had previously fixed. We don't want to let that all slip out of our system. So there's there's a method to the madness there far beyond just diversity in root structures, which is a beautiful thing, and it's great to have deep tap roots and such, but it's something to keep in mind as to how we continue to keep the nutrients in the cycle from one to the next. Yeah, and I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I know that, you know, if I remember correctly, uh, a, a good carbon to nitrogen ratio is 24 to one. So it's 24 carbon to one nitrogen essentially. And that, you know, if that gets out of balance, so if your, if your carbon's way too high, then a lot of those microbes will end up, um, you know, I, I guess, again, I don't know the, the true science of it, but they'll actually start taking nitrogen, um, and using that because it's trying to, uh, I guess go after or break down that carbon. Um, so it kind of like binds up your nitrogen um, to where it's not accessible anymore because of that carbon to ratios. And and then the opposite can happen if your nitrogen is too high, then those microbes start going after your carbon and breaking down your organic matter um, in that regard. Again, I don't know exactly the whole process of how it looks like, but I kind of know that that's uh, an outcome that can happen. I can see that being, so if you did all you know legumes in the in the spring and then all your, you know, brassicas or no broadleaves or something like that that you're just going to keep swinging back and forth where um you don't get really good balance with that 100 percent, right so yeah what, what happens is like if you have just too much carbon and not enough nitrogen your microbes will starve you know gotcha. they they need think of nitrogen as the protein and carbon as the carbohydrate or sugar you know um and you need that balance so that's why you have what they call nutrient tie-up Okay. Yeah. If it's yep. too heavy of carbon, um, a, a good example that most people, at least in the Midwest, can probably uh, envision is when you see corn harvested. Um, after a corn harvest, a lot of times you just see this incredible amount of thatch laying on top of a cornfield, and what happens there is that all the, that stalk is holding a ton of nutrients, um, and without, and that's why a lot of farmers, you can Google this as well. Um, fall time nitrogen application people go why are they spreading nitrogen in in november doesn't make any sense what are they fertilizing in november the reason they're fertilizing in november is because they're look, working to try to break down that thatch or they're doing fall tillage operations in order to add oxygen to the system to help the micro population exp expand so that it can break down that thatch because without that tie what happens you just have total nutrient tie up you know, in a farmer situation, you're like, hey, I got to pay the mortgage here. We got to make sure there is no tie up here. We got to we got to get ready to go 
Um, obviously, in a fruit plot or garden setting, it's still, you know, maybe not equally as frustrating, but still very frustrating um, because you're sitting here scratching your head. Well, I thought I did everything right. Why? Why are things struggling to get nutrients? Well, it's because that that ratio was out of whack. Um, on the inverse of that, you're 100% right. So even when, let's just say you're doing a brassica monoculture, and let's say that those brassicas really only need um, 50 units of N per acre, and you figure out oh, the more the better, you know, you're going to throw down 300 units of N. Likely what's happened, one, you're probably going to waste money um, through volatilization of the nitrogen, just for, again, I mean, we're, we can talk other nutrients, but just I think nitrogen's most recognizable one. Um, but one, wasting money through volatilization. And then two, exactly what you mentioned. You know, these 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 microbes, excuse me, are, are uh, yeah, they're like little animals. I guess I can use that analogy, but they're hungry. And now they've had this nitrogen. Now they're like, man, I need to balance this, this out. I've had all this nitrogen. Where's my carbon? And if there's not a carbon source there, you can mine your organic matter out of your soils. Yep. There's also other negative impacts of over-fertilization. Like, for example, um, it's like if you gave a, like a bodybuilder, right? That's a, a good analogy. You know, they use uh, steroids, or at least some of them do. I'm not trying to give a blanket statement against the bodybuilding community, I guess. But you know <laughs> what I mean? Like if, they're, if they're a steroid user, your body stops producing testosterone. Well, if you're just, if you're only allowing your plants to be force fed, you know, synthetic forms of nitrogen, again, for talking purposes, this is proving they do not communicate with, and they do not grow the roots and they do not um, communicate with the microbiome or microbial system below ground in an optimum way. And why? Because they have it right there. It's the same way a guy who's given steroids after steroids after steroids, their body stops producing testosterone. Unless, you know, they're, they're like monitored by a doctor and things are done right. Well, it's the same idea. So a lot of times with NP and K, you can get by with a lot less than people realize. Right. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I know I did. I went to a, a seminar just this, uh, well, over the winter and they were talking, you know, basically kind of talking about soil health and, um, you know, the microbes and whatnot. And they brought up a good point where. Um, a lot of people are, especially um, phosphorus, like everyone always hears phosphorus is good, phosphorus, phosphorus, phosphorus. And that a, a lot of applications, even like, you know, I mean, they talked about agriculture, um, you know, people's yards, their home gardens, you know, even um, uh, like golf courses and whatnot. They're, they're just pumping so much phosphorus in there that it's tying everything up where um, it's basically making it to where a lot of the other nutrients aren't being accessible um, because of that phosphorus is so high that it's caused that imbalance quite similar to like if you have that imbalance with the the carbon and nitrogen the basically the system kind of gets bogged down because it's trying to deal with all that that phosphorus oh absolutely ty i mean i've seen crazy high this year especially uh phosphorus numbers on some soil tests and i can like immediately and the people are like how did you know that i'm like well did you you know did you put phosphorus fertilizer down like the last couple of years and also have you used dolmite limestone because your magnesium and your phosphorus are like through the roof you know and they're how did you know that i'm like because here here and i i we have a phone call i try to explain it to them um and the thing about phosphorus is you know also is that it's really immobile in the soil 
um, or at least most most types of phosphorus are. So like if you're a farmer and you're running it in like say a two by two, you know, on a planter, so it's two inches in front and two inches to the side or something like that of your of your soybeans. Well, that's like right in the root zone, right? You're you're placing those nutrients, be it phosphorus, potassium, nitrogen, right in the root zone, or maybe you're banding it, or maybe you know you're, it's a foliar drip, but you're putting it darn near on the seed. Um, when you're talking food plotting or gardening and you're talking broadcast and things, um, there, there's a good chance that a lot of it is getting wasted anyways. Uh, and, that, that, and that comes into, well, if you're going to put it down, do you want to work, you know, work it in with tillage? Um, well, if that's the case, you know, I, I would recommend doing um, really get uh, strategic on your soil test. So you really know what you're getting, you know, try to limit as many variables as you can. Um, and then, you know, do that maybe once every like four or five years, use that light tillage to to work those in. But in most cases, in most soils um, that I've seen, you can let your biology, there's a ton of phosphorus in the soils. Dr. Christine Jones, the phosphorus paradox is a great listen for anybody that's interested. Um, you can unlock an incredible amount in your soils. I'll give you a quick example. So last year we grew our nitro boost and in the right before I terminated it, terminated it, I took tissue samples, two different fields, about a half a mile apart on the farm. And um, what I was able to do is look at NPK, micros, calcium, et cetera. And uh, nitrogen that those plants had assimilated about 45 pounds per acre of nitrogen. Uh, in phosphorus, they had assimilated about 25 pounds to the acre of phosphorus. Uh, and these are about a half a mile apart, totally different CECs, different organic matters. And they were like within a pound or two of each particular unit um, or, or uh, yeah, units fine. Um, and then potassium, and it was 85 pounds to the acre of potassium was uptake. Neither one of those fields has ever had an ounce of fertilizer other than lime. So if you count lime, Full transparency, I put lime now, but neither one of those fields has had an ounce of fertilizer on them. And that's what was a similar. So where did it come from? It came from microbes. It came from biology, came from fungal networks. Um, that was in the soil. It right. just needed to be solubilized. That is the balance. That is the number one, in my opinion, that's one of the number one things we need to do is make nutrients plant available through solubilizing them. And what we don't what we need to work on is, how, well, how do we solubilize them? Well, through diversity, through, through increasing organic matter, through reducing disturbance, uh, through managing deer browse, um, you know, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. And that, again, that plays into, um, you know, kind of the next big part that I've, I've learned more so is that it's not necessarily your, 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 your macronutrients, your micronutrients, and then your pH. It comes down to, to um, that living soil or those microbes in the soil um, that you just kind of touched base on where, you know, they are the ones that are going to make a lot of those nutrients available for the plant. Um, and they're extremely good at being able to pull, um, like those mineral, you know, those nutrients that are trapped in mineral, um, or in the soil that a plant just can't do anything with. They're really good at being able to, you know, taking those nutrients, um, you know, kind of do their thing with them to make it to where, like you said, to where a plant can actually utilize it, um, either by that, you know, micro, you know, dying or decaying or getting, um, you know, or releasing that mineral or, um, being consumed by another, you know, type of microbe or whatnot. Um, and then the plant can take that up and utilize it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm a big, big, big fan of, of doing soil tests. And I, I always look at it like twofold is we want to look at, you know, your pH and then, you know, organic matter is obviously nice to have, kind of know where you're starting at. But I like to look at it like chemical structure of our soil. And then how can we optimize that? And then how do we optimize our biological structure? And the biology, biological structure is our one-two system, right? We got, you know, diverse mixes or somebody's doing it themselves, right? It's, it's that idea of maximizing diversity to your comfort level, reducing tillage, um, reducing herbicide use, all of that. That's, that's all beautiful. That, that leads itself to biological processes. But I still think that we need to pay attention to the chemical structure of the soil so that when you're looking at your pH and you're looking at the CEC of your soil and you're making those sound decisions as to, okay, I'm going to spend 100, 200, 1,000, 2 grand, whatever it is on line for this year and next year, and hopefully that'll carry me through several years, what's the best lime for my soil type, right? What's, is it a high cal lime? Maybe I can't get a high cal lime. Do I need to do some dolomite lime? And then do I need to follow up in six months with the gypsum to get my calcium base saturations up? Maybe I have really sandy soils. Do I need to focus more on dolomite lime so I can get my magnesium to be a little bit tighter on that soil to give it a little bit more chemical structure and then let my biology and the fungal networks and the biotic glues such as glomalin that's produced by fungal networks help to hold and aggregate, right? Fancy word for hold together that soil structure. So if you really break it down and try to make it more simple, it's like think chemical, biological, and how do we mesh those two together and give us that sound program and structure and that's why it's like in um you know in a, in a system that's very sandy soils let's say you know it's it's okay to have your magnesium a little bit higher than than say in a system with like really heavy soils maybe we don't want our magnesium as high because we want more calcium to add porosity and that can 90 percent of the time that can be simply managed by adjusting your ph but then taking an extra five minutes to look at your base saturations and then make that decision based on that for your line choice. Yep. Yeah. I, um, that was actually, I'm so glad that we got into this part of the discussion because I was, I was just thinking about that. Um, cause I was just watching the, um, a short little seminar when they were talking about like, for, especially for like the heavy clay soils, um, adding that, that calcium, um, and it kind of like, again not knowing the true science behind it but basically it separates that those um how clay lays on top of each other basically it stacks and by that calcium it separates that that clay those clay particles up a little bit um giving it space and you know loosening those soils up um towards not dealing with that you know just a sheer clay layer it gives it some space for other things to get in there um it's exactly right so you know what a good so ag phd radio is, is an awesome um, YouTube and pocket. They've been around for like 20 years, huge farmers. It's very geared toward agriculture. I think they do it like, they do it like a radio show. So it's like every day, but the way they explain it in the one, and this is, it's been maybe a year. So if I butcher this, I apologize, but it's something close to this. Like think of calcium as a basketball and think of magnesium as a golf ball. So between your layers of, you know, clay and silt and rock and sand and the things that soil are, are made up of 
if you have so much magnesium, you're, you just have these, these tiny little golf balls between your layers are going to be really tight, right? It's going to create this really tight structure, which is okay. But if it's a heavily clay dominated soil, it's going to make something that's already inherently tight, very tight. Right. And that's where a lot of times guys say, oh, I mean, I've even seen guys with low CE soils say I have a compaction issue. And like most of the time I go, let me see your soil test. And their magnesium is like through the roof and into the next county. And it's because they just have been putting too much dolomite lime down and never having any additional calcium. You know, it's also why there are products out there that are liquid calcium products. And somebody will, you know, maybe it's presented as liquid lime or something. We could go down that rabbit hole as to how lime truly works, but we don't necessarily have to. But there's very true, and people will get very defensive of this, right? They'll, they'll get on forums and say, that's not a real lime. But what you can't argue a, a, with is the positive response people are having, Ty. And what is the reason that they're having this positive response? Well, it's because in many soils, there's just not enough solubilized calcium or at least rapidly available so when you go and whether it's altering the ph or not that that doesn't really matter what's happening though is you're feeding these plants a solubilized calcium in a situation where maybe magnesium's through the roof and these plants are starving for calcium so you didn't get this great plant growth because you changed the ph rapidly with a liquid product what you did do though as you got this really great plant growth because you hit it with a, a, a liquid soluble calcium, right? So that's where I think that um, it can pay, you know, the, a few more dollars for a soil test that gives you base saturations. There are some Google apps you can use where you can plug in stuff, but you can really make a lot of sound decisions and understand, man, where am I from a soil perspective by having those numbers on there? And it makes... I mean, it makes a huge difference from a soil structures perspective. Yeah. Yep. And again, I think, um, you know, kind of like what you're just saying, I might've, I thought I was a little, I was a little mistaken thinking that, um, cause originally I thought the calcium was, would help, um, like a bind up or kind of glue together a, a light soil, uh, but it's magnesium. You said then that is for a light soil. Yeah. You still time. want calcium in your soil, of course, but you want um, like a higher percentage of mag, not higher than calcium, but you want a higher percentage of magnesium relative to that soil type than mm. it than if it was a, um, a heavier soil type, right? So maybe you know in a, in a real light soil you can go 20 to maybe even 25% magnesium. Your calcium you're still going to want up there 60 to 70% somewhere in there, and your your potassium can be quite a bit higher too. Um, now what you will see on there is you'll see hydrogen which is your, you know, that's your acidity, right? So if hydrogen's on there in a large percentage, then I can guarantee you your pH is low. So as you add uh, the right lime source, calcitic or, or, or dolmitic, you'll see your hydrogen get bumped off. Well, something has to take that, that parking spot. So if it's dolmite lime, your magnesium is going to take that parking spot, right? In most cases. Um, if it's a high cal lime, your your calcium will. So it's that's what's important that uh, the, to to pay attention because calcium. Think of calcium as adding porosity. So it's going to make your soil your soil and heavy soils like a think of like porosity is like a sponge. Um, but obviously in in sandy soils, we don't need any more porosity. It's already really porous. It's it's like catching rainwater with a screen. So we want to add some structure to it. Yep. And then um, 
you know, since we're on the, the topic of the soil structure and um, the aggregates and whatnot, you know, you can use the chemical side, like you said, using magnesium to help um, a lighter soil, calcium to for a heavier soil. But then also you've got, again, we go back to the, bio, the biological biology of the microbes and those can clump together, um, you know, from my understanding, like a lot of the, the bacteria will kind of grow um, group together and then the a lot of the um, fungi will group with that and create kind of its own aggr- aggregate, I think is the right word, um, where it kind of glues the soil together as well um, with the biology side as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, both of them, the both of those things happen. So like fun- fungal networks will release what's called glomalin and there's a, there's a term for the bacterial Relate, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, basically, it's like a little glue that, like, literally, particles of soil will like hold itself to. It's like it makes itself like a little dome. Um, and that's why, you know, the microbes will communicate straightly through the plants. And um, Dr. Dr. James White does uh, the rhizophagy cycle. Um, and basically, what that talks about is that, you know, in, in living plants, and the microbe communication going to the roots, even up into the plants, the micro, in, in some cases, the plants consuming the microbes um, for food, yep. right? Um, and then also in other times where the, the microbes will then come back out of the plants and then take some of those communications back to their own microbial communities. Again, for, for simple, simplistic terms, microbial community A. And, and then that tells them, hey, we need more potassium right and it's super simplified it's really really complicated science um, that obviously a phd has, has been working on for for years but at the high level you know that's some of the things that are occurring and when you have all of that happening in these different like uh ray archuleta does a really nice job he just calls them biotic glues yeah so think of you know biological glues and that's all you really need to know so you pull a root out of the soil and are your are your roots you know are they naked or it's just like just a plain naked root that's not a really good sign of of soil aggregation or biological aggregation because that root should have soil adhered to it and that's just a simple sign of seeing like wow you know what's creating something's creating that right that plant just isn't doing that all by its own and that's that communication of biology um, you know, going there in, in that fungal networks and hype literally communicating and growing into and within the roots, um, which is a really cool process to to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, again, I'm, I'm so happy that you brought that up because, yeah, that was one thing we learned in that little seminar is that like, yeah, some of the bacteria, I believe it's bacteria, will actually get absorbed by a plant into the root system it'll do its communication it'll trade off whatever it's looking for and then that bacteria will either i think some of it will either get consumed by the plant or like you said some of it gets released back out with whatever that bacteria wanted and puts it back into the soil again um so yeah it's amazing how you know again like you said those plants are built to work with those um you know microbes um, in exchange of trying to make everything much better well and you can see why what we were talking about earlier that if you reduce your microbial communications by overusing synthetic fertilizer or disrupting your microbial systems, you know, in, in a large way, right? That where your plants 
can't communicate anymore because they're just they're they're not overly healthy and they're not having strong root exudates which is going to then promote or farm if you will the microbes so if you don't have you don't get to experience and your plants don't get to experience all of those other things um which is obviously detrimental to the plants um when plants do experience those things and they are taking up microbes and they are consuming them and they are having less stress from a, uh, a protein conversion perspective of those microbes there's a lot of science also that shows they'll have higher BRICS readings and there's direct relationships to higher BRICS readings to um, better pest resistance which is really amazing where they have done studies. And again, these are PhDs, super brilliant people. And they're doing studies where, you know, they'll uh, have these really high bricks rating plants and they have a, a Japanese beetle come in and try to consume it. And it's a plant that maybe they would normally consume. And they all of a sudden they notice the plants with the higher bricks levels that were grown in really fertile, um, high microbial systems are able to excrete like an acid for lack of, you know, my understanding. But basically where that Japanese beetle bites into it and it's like, whoa, that was bitter. Don't want that. And, and it leaves and it goes find a goes and finds a less healthy plant. Yeah. And that's all done through that microbial system. Again, Dr. James White is, uh, for anybody interested, uh, the rise of phagy cycle is a really, really good listen. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you keep beating me to all the punch. Like I was just going to thinking about, you know, kind of closing towards the end of talking about um, bricks because again bricks is essentially like the the nutrient uh, density or the health of the plant correct yeah it's a, i mean a lot of times guys will say it's a sugar reading or carbohydrate reading um you know of the of the fruit or of the leaf the leaf matter you know i think you can do a little bit more involved testing if you want to do like sap analysis or something like that um, I have done some tissue sampling. I do a lot of cover crop tissue sampling. Um, I haven't done the, the sap analysis at this point, but, uh, but you can do bricks readings with a refractometer. I mean, you can buy one off Amazon for like 20 bucks and it uses sunlight and, um, they give you a little dropper and you put it on there and, and it'll give you a, you know, a rough reading for eight, 10, 14, uh, so on and so forth. So, so pretty cool, especially for home gardeners and stuff. If you want to check the bricks, say your cherry tomato, cherry tomatoes, you can do that. Um, right at home there in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was one thing that they talked about. Again, the thing I just learned over the winter is that like, you know, having that higher bricks is, it is going to make it more resistant to, um, like you said, especially, um, you know, certain insects also a little bit more, uh, disease resistance. So, you know, especially if you're a farmer or doing orchards or anything like that, like it's going to help protect your plants from, you know, the insects or disease. Um, by having, you know, a nicer, healthier plant that has all the nutrients it needs um, to be the healthiest it can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where, um, you know, I don't want people to think like I'm totally anti-amendments. I'm not at all. I'm just trying to give you a, my best job of explaining kind of the backgrounds of the systems. Um, but I think the best thing that we all, that we can do for for all of us, right? Like I do it religiously is make sure that we're taking consistent soil samples and then if we are going to add amendments um consider our options you know do we want to maybe we can add a natural you know organic foliar spray you know and, and maybe that even has some microbes in it or food for microbes or some of the things we were talking about before we started you know a compost tea um you know there there are some really <clears throat> excuse me great products out there that go a lot further than just you know your triple 13 yep. you know a heavy salt based fertilizer you know there's a lot of really good products out there that you can consider 
um, foliar applying, doing a root, you know, if you're planting apple tree, doing a root dip. You know, that's something I do with my tomatoes a lot is use, you know, fungal or bacterial um, when I'm transplanting to help reduce transplant shock and just give them that additional root um, structure. You know, anybody who's growing tomatoes knows you start them from seed and you probably transplant them at least once, then maybe even a second time. And then eventually uh, you get to plant them in the ground. And tomatoes are a unique plant because you can take them and plant them really, really deep. Um, and they just basically all of that becomes roots, you know. Uh, whereas like, you know, pepper or something, you're not going to plant that deep um, because it's more of a stalk type species. But tomatoes are unique in that. You can literally plant them up to their neck in, in soil and they'll just kind of get fatter and, and a really nice stalk and grow up. So when you transplant them, uh, it's a really good tip. So if you're adding a mycorrhizal fungi or bacteria to that um, to help establish stronger root systems and a healthier plant, even in that potting soil, um, or trees, you can do the same thing. Uh, it's like a little insurance policy. And that's not gonna, that's a biological addition, right? Um, if you wanna foliar spray, something I've used in my garden with pretty good responses has been like fish hydrolysate. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's like, mm -hmm. it's stinky. But it's like <laughs> basically from uh, like the fish industry, like they they grind up and, and process the, it's all natural, right? So like, let's say they cut the, <clears throat> cut the fish up for the parts that we're going to eat and then there's all this other part it's like well what are we going to do with that well they process that all up and you know another common one's like bone meal or blood meal which is you know taken from similar processes and it's like natural and you can it's processed and then you can use that um to feed your plants and and those are all cool again too much of a good thing is not always a good thing so right. you don't want to overdo it um but those are some just alternative options I thought I'd throw out there because there are some soils, Ty, I'll tell you, that are really degraded. And I we have an absolutely fantastic program, our one-two system, but I want people to be successful. And if their soils, I, I looked at one just a day or two ago, they had less than 1% organic matter and like a one or two CEC soil. So like basically Daytona beach sand. That's a really, there, there's just not much there. So do I think that we need to go in and haul tops? So no, but I think we do, we probably are going to have to foliar feed those plants the first maybe few years to generate the above ground and below ground biomass. Maybe use fungal inoculants, maybe use bacterial inoculants to get that population established to then allow a system to run, right? And that that's a pretty extreme example. I don't right. see that often, but I just wanna kind of explain, you know, as we wrap up a little bit more about really take the time, soil test and, and, and get yourself in a position where you feel confident with a plan to attack. And don't look at it year one. You know, year one, that's, we're just gonna start, look at it like one, two, three years. Where would I like to see this pH? Where would I like to see, you know, this, this, uh, base saturations over the next one, two, and three years. Yep. Now, so with you talking about, you know, like you said, the inoculant, um, again, it was, it was so funny that, you know, I was just kind of going through some social media, just kind of wasting some time until we had a chance to talk. And all of a sudden I see a video pop up where you're announcing a new product of just that thing. Whereas, a, um, I think you said it's more so for a fungal inoculant, correct? Where it's just going to give the, um, you know, kind of give that those microbes and whatnot a little bit of a boost around that plant to help that plant, you know, right off the get go. Um, so 
if you would go ahead and talk about that a little bit more and you know let's talk about that new product um and kind of yeah, what the benefit I, is yeah yeah so we partnered with uh tanio biologics they're a company out of washington state and uh, i've been following them for a long time and, and actually got to talk to their, i think he was the ceo or president i forget his exact title now um, but really brilliant biologist um and I've been speaking, obviously we partner with Ward Labs and, and you know, I spoke to people over, over there for some time about different biological inoculants, you know, nothing specific to a brand, but just what are your thoughts and stuff. And um, it seems pretty homogeneous throughout the industry, um, the, you know, the agricultural industry, like, yeah, there's merit to this. You know, there, there's a lot of really great companies out there. Uh, John Kempf from AEA, uh, he does the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast. He has a bunch of biological products and primers that they've been using for for many years with great success. So it seems like it's it's a pretty agreed upon um, understanding. So I had been trying some of these for the last, I would say maybe a year or so, and honestly for mostly for my own gardening type of of situation. And what really intrigued me um, by it was I was seeing, you know, positive results and, you know, obviously getting the mycorrhizal fungi aspect and having, um, we have two different products. One is the Spectrum Plus Myco, they call it. It's like 20 different strands of various rhizobacteria. So, um, you know, helps with nitrogen fixation, helps with, um, you know, nutrient cycling, all, all of those type of things. It's all those good bacteria that you want and you want to have them right there on your roots. Um, and then of course there's mycorrhizal fungi and there's a couple different strands that are in that particular powder. Um, so I use it a lot on transplanting tomatoes. I uh, transplant them, I put a little bit of the powder, I spray a little bit of water, put the tomato in there and, and seal it up, right? And um, it's it's been working really well. The other product is, is called Micro 5000, um, which again has a ton of bacteria. Then it also has um, a bunch of micronutrients, which is something that we see, especially like you were saying earlier, you know, you have a lot of soils with so much phosphorus, such an abundance of phosphorus, and nobody's looked at the zinc levels in forever. And and that can have a real detriment on yield, um, or in, in Whitetail's case, just, just appearance, right? Because your zinc is all tied up. And those micronutrients, um, you know, they're normally not the first one we look at, but they can impact us, especially if it's the lowest hole in the bucket. Yep. Uh, so, you know, having that product and there's what's cool about the Micro 5000, it also has a biological component to it as well. Um, to again, just to help further stimulate that biology. So both those products, what really intrigued me about them is they come in a small pack. So they're like a pound, maybe a little bit, maybe half a pound of powder. And that covers up to an acre. Um, the Micro 5000 is actually about 12 ounces and that covers... So it's a little less than a pound. I think it's 12 ounces. Um, and that covers up to two acres. So it's super potent stuff. And what's neat about it from a food plotting perspective is you can actually do um, what they call seed treatment. So you can put this powder right on the seed and mix it in. Um, you can do, there's water soluble. So you can solubilize it and then spray it on foliarly. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's, oh, and then of course the, the last one would be the root dip. Uh, which would be more for trees or like transplanting, you know, tomatoes or peppers or whatnot. But that's where you put it in the water and solubilize it in the water, you know, agitate the water, make sure it's totally dissolved. And then you're dipping the plant in there and letting it soak for, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so. And then putting that plant into the hole or into its final resting place, if you will. Um, so there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Um, of course, if you're planting a tree, you could just put it straight into the hole, add a little bit of water, put the tree in there. Um, etc. So those are the ways that uh, they can be used. 
you know, they come in a little packet and that way you're not hauling around water. You know, you get to your property um, or you get to where you want to use it. Then you can mix it up yourself, which is kind of nice, too, because you're not dealing with like carrying, you know, 30 jugs of water um, all around. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that I, I mean, it was so funny that I was thinking about that and I was going to talk to you about the compost tea um, or the compost abstract. With basically what that is, um, I'm not going to make you have to explain it all, but. Basically, it's a, a, a solution that you kind of take up some compost, you mix it in with um, water, and you add a bunch of oxygen to it, and it basically um, grows a bunch of bacteria, basically good microbacteria, uh, and then you would either put that on um, you know, on your plants, uh, right on the foliage, or you put it on your soil to kind of help boost up some microbes for your soil. Um, extract's a little bit different. It's basically um, you kind of grow those bacterial microbes especially, and then they're kind of more in a dormant phase, so they, you know, you don't need as much. Um, they're not as volatile to where they're going to start eating up all the oxygen. And, um, you know, it's a little bit, it basically, they kind of, they're sitting dormant, and then they kind of wake up um, once they're in the soil, and the soil temperatures get right for them and everything like that. Um, the same idea, kind of, if, you're, if you don't have that biology, it helps boost it for you. Um, again, different techniques on different applications, of course, but, um, you know, that's kind of what that idea was. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, because think of it like if you're spraying something that's dormant, even if you have biology that's already there and you're spraying something like compost tea, which is going to be somewhat of a food source and, even you know, some of your bacteria, let's say it lives, let's even if it doesn't, as you're giving this the bi biology that's there, this this food source, right, it's going to be consuming it and it's it's going to be propagating rapidly, you know, so so you're in a way, even if you're indirectly um establishing you know your your microbial system you're, you're going to increase the population just by adding that food source now too much of a good thing isn't a good thing right, right? as we said before because you need to make sure that those microbes that you're increasing have a food source because we don't want to mine our organic matter um but it's still a very very cool process and thing that we can do um, with our systems yep yep and then again you know kind of just to kind of bring this back you know, back around and bring it home to everyone. And, you know, again, the big thing that I ended up, you know, really starting to look into the soil health movement, um, you know, trying to come up with a better system um, similar to what you've created with the different, um, you know, plant mixes that are going to, you know, do that nutrient cycling. You know, part of that is, you know, for one, I was trying to find a cheaper, easier way to, you know, grow food plots and, you know, improve soil health. And then the other was, you know, basically trying to have a healthier plant for deer and wildlife to have. And, you know, that whole process with the, um, you know, the six foundations of soil health, your plant, basically the mix that you came up with, um, and, or, you know, any type of mix that, you know, is looking for, you know, soil regeneration or I guess soil regeneration, not quite the right word, but soil health, I guess I should say, you know, ultimately, you know, it's going to, if you're doing it, right and you know are patient with it using some of those tricks that you can kind of boost it and kind of speed along a little bit you're going to end up saving more on having to do inputs you're going to have healthier plants you know for me on the food pot side um you know that's going to be more nutrient you know food for the deer and wildlife you know healthier deer bigger antlers that type of stuff that could be a, an outcome of that and then even like in the just in the, like a garden aspect or agriculture you know, if you have, you know, farmers that are not having to put so much into inputs, um, 
you know, they're going to do better off, you know, as a farmer, they're going to be growing better plants, which are going to be healthier for the consumer um, when we buy it in the grocery store and whatnot, or even that local farmer just doing their own garden. You know, it comes down to that, you know, those, that, that crop that you grow or those plants that you're growing in the garden um, are going to be more nutritious. And, you know, they talk about, you know, even the, especially like the fruit that they've done a lot of studies on, you know, the fruit is going to have more sugar in it. It's going to be more flavorful and, and be more nutritious. Um, They're actually talking about, there's a, a group that's trying to come up with an app where they do a breakdown of different produce and they can actually look at, you know, the difference between, um, you know, basically a high nutrient. I think the one example they did was carrots where you have one carrot that was grown um, that's high in nutrient compared to, you know, another carrot that was, you know, grown um, with low nutrient. And it was like, like the nutrient content of that one carrot equaled 200 of another carrot that, um, you know, basically had poor nutrient content. So by boosting that, I mean, you're getting far more beneficial food um, on the consumer side. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. Some of the science that's coming out and the opportunities that arise, especially for, for us humans, you know, what are we going to be eating and how are we going to be able to make those choices, um, you know, right there at the grocery store, yeah. uh, you know, which is, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, you can do a lot with a little, I think that the world record corn is over 600 bushel per acre. It's done by a regenerative agriculture farmer. And I think he's in North or South Carolina. Um, and he's, he's doing cover cropping, you know, he fertilizes, but he's, cut his you know typical end down tr- tremendously he's adding a ton of biological inoculants and stimulants to help um you know he's hyper focused on his below ground biology and he grew over 600 bushel corn on non-midwestern soils so there's there's definitely something to it you know but it's not an overnight fix and um you know it's it's something it's a process why we call it you know it's a system we call it our one-two system it's a process and uh it's a lot of fun and i tell people keep pulling soil samples keep monitoring things you know keep adjusting seeding rates and whatnot because you know every single property is different yep yep and again you i mean i know you always talk about i mean i think almost every video you talk about a soil sample um know what's going on so that way you know what you know amendments or what changes you have to make to make the system better so yep absolutely absolutely all right man well i think we covered basically everything i was wanting to touch on i mean is there anything else that you wanted to close out with or something that you think um people need to know or that we missed talking about no i don't i mean the only thing i would say is you know don't get too eager to plant guys wait till uh wait till you know the soil temps get to be about 55 and climbing you know you want to kind of catch it as it's ramping up i tell people try to catch that upward trajectory that way if you have your seed in the ground right before that kind of hits that 60 degree temperature but it's on that way you know maybe you beat some of them weeds out of the ground um, specifically with spring planting you know so if you can get in that um, and kind of catch that upward wave but uh, other than that no ty thanks so much for having me and let me ramble on here and, and for all the people listening i appreciate it and uh yeah if you'd like to check us out vitalizeseed.com if you have questions if you're interested or not um interested in our products and just want to talk uh, soils uh, I love chatting with people, so so reach out, and I'm happy to try to help. All right, man. Well, thank you again for coming on. Again, you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, you know, with with all of this, with soil health and how to make the system work and 
you know, like you said, even when if you're just if you're a food plotter, if you're a farmer, or if you're just growing your own little garden, you know, a lot of these stuff that you talk about applies to all those aspects. So it's 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 exciting to see, especially too with the growing people are kind of catching on and um, you know getting on board with it. Yeah, it, it's it's a little overwhelming sometimes. You know, it's an, it's been a real blessing to talk to so many great people and help so many people and bounce ideas off guys who are, like I said, agronomists, you know, or, or full-time huge farmers, you know, and they're calling like, Hey, what, what do you think about this or that? Or, Hey, and it's, it's humbling, but it's also really exciting just to see that movement. And the, the last thing I guess I will say is there's a lot of pressure out there to dive in to the soil health movement or regenerative, you know, both feet. And I like to always tell people, and I say it in a lot of videos, and it probably gets you know beaten like a dead horse, but any step towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction. So if you want to till because it was your grandpa's tiller and it just is, it just means something to you, that's all right, you know. But just recognize what it's doing in in that it's probably going to upset some fungal networks. So if you're going to till, don't bury the tiller. Can you till it a half inch? You know, get the tiller out, get on the tractor, put on George Strait radio. You can do the things you want to do, but just do it at a half inch instead of six inches. You know, try to leave a little bit of thatch, you know, conservation tillage, right? Try to leave some thatch coverage after the fact. Um, and then try to use really diverse mixes, you know, and try to reduce your need for synthetic inputs and, and maybe use a, a fish hydrolysate or, or, you know, some of the other things we talked about. And, and again, be conservative with that and see what your results are, you know, and, and maybe it's it's cutting down fertilizer by 50% and just see what your results are. Try to get a biological inoculant out there, but just dip your toe in and just every year move a little bit more. And if we work like that and we all help each other, regardless if you're using my system or somebody else's or whatever, and it, it help each other, educate each other and, and push each other to get better, but in a good way, in a supportive way, I think that's a hell of a lot better for soil conservation than this like feeling like, well, if you don't got a roller crimper and a no-till drill, then you might as well quit. Right. Because that that really puts a lot of people on the, the outer edge. Like, I'm never going to have that. Yep. And I don't want people to feel that way. So if you have specific questions that, hey, how can I implement this on my farm or my piece of property? Give me a call, you know, shoot me an email. And um, I'm happy to take the time to try to come up with a plan that's going to work for you, even if all you have is a rake and a hand broadcast spreader. Yep, yep. That's that's a fantastic point. I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it you don't have to, you know, jump in, you know, head deep. Um, you know, you can make incremental, you know, steps, like you said. Um, you know, they especially like if in regards to like especially those big time farmers, like they can't they can't you know rip that bandit off and go cold turkey like they have to make a profit still so they talk about that where some of these farmers hey you know start doing a cover crop you know start leaving start leaving you know don't leave your field bare put something on it you know have something green growing as much as you can um and then take steps from there you know so they don't lose their production in the meantime because they you know they gotta pay for the farm um so that that's a fantastic point that you brought up that yeah you don't have to you don't have to jump in full with both feet right away. Um, just take it, like you said, those incremental steps, do your soil sample and then see what, you, see what you can make, you know, changes for one year and then do another soil sample, see where you got to do it for the next year. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Ty, thank you so much for having me, buddy. I really, really appreciate it. It's always good catching up with you. Yeah, it's been, it's been great, man. Again, I love, love your, your videos, of course. And then, yeah, if anyone's interested, you know, check out, um, you know, I believe it is correct. Check sure. out your product yes, and, you know, kind of what your philosophy is a little bit more depth. So thank you again, man. I'll let you go for the night and, uh, it was great talking to you. Likewise, buddy. Take care now. All right. See Bye-bye. All right, that is it for the conversation with Albert. Again, Albert, thank you so much for coming on. I was, you know, really excited to be able to talk with you, uh, to learn more about uh, the relationship between, um, you know, basically, you know, the plants that we grow to the soil and the microbes in it, and how we can utilize that system. Um, kind of how like we closed out where, you know, it's not just about trying to grow a good food plot. Um, you know, is, is being able to uh, be able to, you know, grow uh, either a food plot or a garden, or if you're doing agriculture and trying to get the most out of it, um, you know, in regards to improving soil quality, uh, to where you're having to use less input, saving money, saving on having to use synthetic fertilizers, uh, you know, ultimately saving on irrigation if need be. Um, and then also the plants that you'll be growing are going to be more nutritious. So whether it's for human consumption or for animals, they're going to get more out of it um, and ultimately be healthier um, or, you know, be in better health um, because of it. So, you know, that's kind of what, you know, you, you end up going down that rabbit hole of you're not just doing a food plot because you just want to try to draw deer in. Then all of a sudden you are down this, you know, down this path of really trying to be, um, again, a conservationist in regards to um, the resources and, you know, kind of in agriculture in, in general, um, trying to use best practices for uh, your pocketbook as well as for the environment. So I'm excited about the new product that you're, um, you know, have um, or that you've released. You know, it's something that, again, it seems like it's a very cost effective way to just kind of help those microbes um, be able to start working with the plant, especially in a vol- in a you know stage of either transplanting or um, a, a, a new planting on seeds that just helps them make sure that that relationship between the microbes and the nutrients um, is working for them right off the get go. So it's a, it seems like an awesome product that can kind of help jumpstart um, your you know maybe get a plant off to the right you know footing um, right off the get go. So and certainly too you know NitroBoost is for sale right now. So if you if you're trying if you're thinking about you know changing up what your seed is for for the year you know I'd highly recommend um, going with Vitalize Seed again. It would be the Nitro Boost for the spring, and then you would turn around and terminate that towards the end of summer before your food uh, food plot program, and then you would follow up with Carbon Load. And again, you'll be very surprised that you know you can actually start to cut down on on that fertilizer um using that nutrient cycling where you know and as albert said too you know make sure that you do a soil sample um before you're planting so you know what type of amenities need to be made um and that way you're not you know you know offsetting that balance um but adding too much nutrients that the soil may not need and then also you'll be able to kind of plug those you know lowest holes in the bucket um, that way your plants are a little bit more healthier and ultimately you have a better program going forward so again if you're interested check out what they have at vitalizeseed.com and see if that is the right program for your food pot system and with that that's a wrap as always get out there be safe 
and have fun.